when the Apostle Paul preached his final message to the Ephesian elders, he told him he was innocent. He told them he was innocent of the blood of all people, because he had he did not shrink shrink back from declaring to them the whole counsel of God. I was reading through the book of Acts in 2019, and that idea being free of the blood of all men, preaching the whole counsel of God, it really gripped my heart. And as I prayed about it and thought through it, I decided the best way to be sure I had preached the whole counsel of God and thus would be free of the blood of all men would be to focus on preaching through books of the Bible. That's why, except for a few occasions, which we know there are occasions, we have mostly gone through books in the Bible in our time together. We go through mostly books of the Bible on Sunday morning, mostly on Sunday night, uh, but with rare exceptions we do deviate. But for the most part we try to stay with going through book by, verse by verse through a book of the Bible. And part of the reason I'm telling you this is because obviously we're going back uh, to our journey through the Gospel of Mark, the plan is to stay here until we finish, hopefully, by the end of the year. One of the blessings of preaching through a book of the Bible is that you do preach the whole counsel of God. From the time you've gone from chapter 1, verse 1 of a book, to the final verse, the final chapter of a book, you've covered a wide variety of subjects. But this blessing of preaching the whole counsel of God, it also brings with it certain challenges. Um, you can't skip difficult parts of the Bible. Um, it becomes noticeable if you jump a passage. It becomes noticeable if you jump a particular topic. Uh, and so you're, you're forced to wrestle with difficult passages that are sometimes maybe hard to understand. You're, you're forced to wrestle with different, difficult topics that, that are sometimes maybe controversial in the way they'll be received by people. Such is the case as we go back to the Gospel of Mark. Where we're picking up at, we ended last time in Mark in verse 50 of chapter 9. We pick up in verse 10, or chapter 10, verse 1. And the religious leaders are going to come to Jesus. And they're going to ask him uh, an opinion on the controversial issue of divorce. Now we'll talk about why it was controversial in their day as we get into the message. But it is controversial in our day because the rate of divorce in America guarantees... Most families, if not every single family, has been impacted by divorce. I realize I am preaching to people today who have been through divorce. I realize I'm preaching to people today who have been affected by divorce. I realize I'm preaching to people today who have strong opinions about divorce. Now, for this reason, I approach the topic with a measure of fear and trembling. My desire is not to hurt anyone more than what they've already been hurt through divorce. My desire is not to pour condemnation on those who are already struggling because of their divorce. And if I'm just being ruthlessly honest, my desire would not be to preach this particular passage at all because of the potential it has to hurt people I dearly love. But my job, my calling from the Lord Jesus Christ, it is to preach the whole counsel of God. And I cannot shirk that no matter what. I cannot lower what Jesus says in this passage to fit with the cultural ideas of divorce in our day. I can't add to what Jesus says in this passage to sort of strengthen it. So maybe we would take marriage a little more seriously and divorce would be a little less common. I can only, to the best of my ability, say what I believe Jesus is saying in this passage. So with all of that said, open your Bible to Mark chapter 10 if you haven't already. We're going to start in verse 1. should be page 770 in the Pew Bible. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. 
Setting out from there, Jesus went beyond the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered to him again. As was his, as he was accustomed, he began to teach them. Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and began questioning him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife. And he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send his wife away. But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God created them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and the two shall become one flesh. And they're no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, no person is to separate. And in the house, the disciples again began questioning him about this. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Title of the message this morning is Jesus's teaching on divorce. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You're great and awesome. You're worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity we have uh, to gather, to sing your praise, to study your word, just to be together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, we... We pray this morning that you would bless our, our missionaries in Bulgaria, Father, that you would give them wisdom and favor as they try to reach out to their community. We pray that you would just guide them and use them, Lord, to further your kingdom in that area. Lord, we pray today as we come to this text, we, we, want, we want your understanding. Father, we don't want to capitulate to the culture, but we don't want to make something up that's not real either. We want to follow what Jesus says, live how Jesus says, so, Lord, let Holy Spirit come today and, and open our minds to receive your word. Let him make it living and active to us, to challenge us where we ought to be challenged, to strengthen us where we ought to be strengthened, encourage us where we ought to be encouraged. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech. That I would speak your words and your ways for your glory, Lord. Just have your way in all our hearts and all our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus is, is quickly headed to Jerusalem and the cross. His fame uh, has spread, so crowds gather him everywhere he go. And Jesus sets an example for us in verses 1 and 2 of redeeming the time by using every opportunity to teach the crowds. As he is teaching the crowds, the Pharisees come up to him, and it says that they were testing him. Right? They're, they're, they're seeking really to, to undermine and discredit Jesus by asking him questions. Their hope is that Jesus will give an answer uh, that will give them a reason to accuse Jesus or to condemn Jesus. In this case, the issue they asked him was about divorce. Now, theoretically, no nation ever had a higher ideal of marriage than the Jewish nation. Marriage was seen as a sacred duty. It was such an important aspect of Jewish life that if a male refused to marry and have children, he was seen as being guilty of breaking God's law. To go forth and multiply. The only justifiable reason to delay marriage or refuse to marry was to devote oneself to study the law of God. Ideally, the Jews hated divorce because Malachi 2.16 assures us God hates divorce. Unfortunately, the reality fell far short of the ideal. The issue of divorce was a sort of great debate among the Jews and the rabbis of Jesus' day. Now, the reason for this was that the Old Testament, when it talked about divorce, there were primarily two passages that spoke about divorce. Uh, Exodus 21, verses 10 and 11. It says, if a man takes himself another woman, he may not reduce her food, her clothing, or her conjugal rights. 
But if, uh, but if he will not do these three things for her, she shall go free for nothing without payment or money. Now, this passage says that a woman, a wife, is free to leave the marriage if the husband fails to provide her with food, with clothing, with physical intimacy, conjugal love. Now, these are the basics of material and emotional support. Now, when you read the passage, you find it's talking about what it refers to as a, a slave wife. Now, slave wife is a foreign concept to us, one we don't have time to get into this morning. Uh, but it was something that was common in the ancient world. Uh, this was just the way the world was. And what God's word does here is it provides a, a, these slave wives with rights. This would have been a, a radical departure from the way the ancient world worked. To give a, a slave wife the rights to say, you are not providing me with food, clothing, physical intimacy. I can leave the marriage and, and was free to go. Didn't have to buy her freedom, could just leave. Was a, a radical concept. Well, what the ancient rabbis determined was, if a, if a slave wife had those kind of a rights, then free wives did as well. So the, the, the issues of divorce, you could divorce uh, freely if or justifiably if there was a lack of food, clothing or physical intimacy, conjugal love. The other passage was when a man, was Deuteronomy 24, 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her and it happens if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, that he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her away from the house. Now, so if a wife, two, two, two conditions, if the wife finds no favor in his eyes because there's some sort of indecency, he can send her away and give her a certificate of divorce. Now, what, what the New American Standard calls indecency, some translations call uncleanness. But in the context of the passage, it's not explicitly defined or stated what is unclean, what is indecent. But it is strongly implied it refers to some sort of sexual immorality. Now, over time, the, the rabbi theologians sought to, to define indecency and uncleanness. Clearly and finally regarding marriage and divorce. They wanted an absolute, this is what it means. Well, as any group of people begin to study the Bible, they came diverging views about what it meant. Um, and, and there were two schools of thought that, that came to come out of this. Uh, they were following two leading rabbis. One was the rabbi Hillel. Um, it, and it focused on the, the first part, that, they, that the husband finds no favor. She finds no favor in her husband's eyes. And it took a, a more liberal approach to divorce. This approach came to be known as the, the any cause divorce. And what it was saying was, if a husband found any cause of displeasure in his wife, he was justified in divorcing her. Um, R. Kent Hughes says this, he says, they said a man could divorce his wife if she spoiled his dinner. They also extended indecent to mean walking about with her hair down, speaking to men on the street, or speaking disrespectfully of her husband's parents in his presence. Think of it. A wrong word about a mother-in-law and a woman could be out on the street. Rabbi Akaba, who was of this school of thought, went even further saying that the phrase who becomes displeasing or found no favor meant that a man could divorce his wife if he found another woman who was more beautiful, right? Any cause for divorce. But then there was Rabbi Shammai, 
who took a more conservative approach and said indecency or uncleanness only meant some sort of sexual immorality within the marriage. So when the Pharisees are asking Jesus in verse 2 about divorce, they aren't asking about the Exodus passage. They aren't asking about if those things are okay. That those things are, are settled. They're, they're asking him his interpretation of indecency, of finds no favor from Deuteronomy 21. Notice how Jesus answers their question in verse 3. Look at verse 3. What did Moses command you? By asking them what Moses said, he is essentially asking them what God's word says. What does the Bible say? What does God say in his word? Jesus modeled for us here the truth that God's word is the ultimate and the final authority for all things. This is important because we live in a day where feelings tend to trump everything. Feelings are paramount. If it hurts my feelings, it can't be true or it can't be right. If it makes me feel bad, it can't be true or it can't be right. This cannot be so for disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's word must be the ultimate authority in all things. In any area where we elevate our feelings over God's word, we are saying our feelings are ultimate and not God and not his word. So Jesus models, what does the Bible say? This is what we're trying to do today. What does the Bible say? So look at verse four, their answer. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send his wife away. They answer uh, his question by affirming that God's word made provision for divorce. What they're trying to do, though, is draw Jesus into a trap. The two sides were greatly contested. As with all things, we know from just living in a world that when one person has one opinion, another person has another opinion, that if you take one side, you alienate yourself from the other. They knew whatever side Jesus took, whichever one he agreed with, it would alienate another portion of people. But Jesus was not willing to play their games. He was not willing to do what it was they wanted him to do. So his answer in verses 5 through 9 is really multifaceted and strong. And it is essentially a rebuke of the entire conversation. So there are several truths we, we learn about what Jesus is saying. First... Divorce was a concession, not a command. Look at verse 5. But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Divorce was a concession based upon human hearts are hard. God's word tells us God hates divorce. Malachi 2.16. What God prefers is when issues arise is for the offending spouse to be willing to forgive and work through the issues. Or I'm sorry, the offending spouse to repent and change. The offended spouse to be willing to forgive and work through the issues. This is God's intention. This is God's desires. But human hearts are hard. Sometimes the offending spouse's heart is hard. And they are unwilling to repent and they are unwilling to change. 
But other times the offended spouse's hearts are hard and they are unwilling to forgive and they are unwilling to work through it. Divorce was a concession based upon that reality. Secondly, we see creation reveals God's divine design for marriage and sexuality. Look at verses six through nine. But from the beginning of creation, God created them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. The two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, no person is to separate. Many important truths are revealed throughout this section. One, Jesus affirms the creation account is true. Uh, By quoting it, Jesus affirms the creation account reveals God's design for sexuality. God created male and female. God created two genders. Humans created all the rest, leading to the confused and deceived culture we find ourselves in today. God created men to be with women and women to be with men. Any other pairing is a rejection and a perversion of God's divine design for sexuality. Jesus affirms creation reveals God's design for marriage. One man, one woman for life. Jesus affirms the priority of the marriage relationship. They leave father and mother and they are joined together. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Jesus affirms the effusion, the fusion of marriage. They two become one, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Jesus affirms the divine covenant of marriage. Verse 9, God joined them together. But the difference between a, a civil union and holy wedlock is the covenant that people make. Right? When People are married in holy wedlock. When they ask the church and the pastor to be a part of their marriage ceremony, they are saying they want to be in a covenant relationship with God and with one another. God is the one who joins them together in that relationship. Jesus affirms the intended permanence of marriage. It is not to be separated. Our culture's idea of starter marriages Or our culture's idea of no-fault divorces is a rejection of what God has revealed in His Word. Look at verse 9. Therefore, what God has joined together, no person is to separate. This seems to be the, the primary command, what Jesus is getting at in the entire passage. This is true as you read the rest of the passage. Verse 10, And in the house the disciples began questioning Him about this, and He said to them, Whosoever... Divorces his wife and marries another woman, commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. So what God has joined should not separate. So if we if we take God's word at face value, we let God's word be the standard. Our key truth for the message today would be this. You shouldn't unone what God has made one. You shouldn't unone what God has made one. Now, with this is the reality. No one ever goes into marriage. Well, I, I say no one. I'm sure maybe there are some people, but few people go into marriage thinking we're just looking for the first chance out of this thing. Even people who have been married for a long time aren't 
typically looking for a way out. And yet we know culture, history, life teaches us divorces are very, very common in our culture. In the early years, even in the latter years anymore. So while this is the standard, we shouldn't unwind what God has made one. We know nobody wants to unwind what God has made one. What I want to do is focus the rest of the service on how can we protect our marriages so that we don't end up unwinding what God has made one. What can we do to strengthen our marriage? Right, Because the idea in this passage is that marriages should be strong. They should be healthy. This shouldn't, we shouldn't get to the place where this is what needs to be done. So what can we do practically as husbands and wives to strengthen our marriage so that we don't get to the place where we feel we need to unwind what God has made one? Or if you're single, what, what do you need to have in mind that you're going to do when you get married so that your marriage will be strong and healthy and you won't feel the need to unwind what God has made one? Well, here's a few things. One, start with God's word. We need to always start with God's word. For, for those who are single, who should we marry? Or who should we not marry? I mean, are there, are, are there people we should not be in that kind of a relationship with and marry since we are disciples of Jesus? Now, God's word may not give us the specific answer, like marry this person. But to be sure, God's word does tell us the kind of people we should marry and the kind of people we shouldn't marry. So if you're a single and you're looking, what does God's word say about who you should marry, who you shouldn't marry? How should we treat our spouses? How should husbands treat their wives? How should wives treat their husbands? As, as single people, what should we look for in ways that people should treat me as their spouse and how I'm supposed to treat them as my spouse? Well, what does God's Word say? What does God's Word say about that? How do we raise our children? Are there certain things we should do? Certain things we shouldn't do? Should some things be the priority and not others? What, what does God's word say? What does God's word say about our values and what they should be? What does God's word say about our priorities, what they should be? What does God's word say about money, how we make it, how we spend it, how we use it? What does God's word say about the kind of lifestyle we ought to live? Right? If we want to have a strong Marriage, we've got to start with what does God's word say? Jesus tells us in Luke 6, 47 through 49, God's word is meant to be the foundation our lives are built on. This would include our marriages. One of the reasons this is so important is because in the passage, Jesus says, the life built on his word will withstand the storms of life. As an individual human being, you will face storms of life. And you will only stand strong and stay standing after them when your life is built firmly on God's word. As a married couple, individual storms become dual storms. 
stronger, harder, more difficult. How will our marriages survive the storms we will legitimately face? Only by being built on God's word. A marriage where the husband and the wife are both. Not not husband only, not wife only. Husband and wife both are striving to ensure their marriages are built on God's word. Will survive the storms life inevitably throws at them. But, and this is the key, it's not enough to just know what God's word says. We have to do what God's word says. See, the building of our lives on God's word isn't in the knowing, it is in the doing, Jesus says. So, what does God's word say about all those things? How am I living all of those things like Jesus says in his word? Strengthen our marriages so we don't end up in a place where we, where unwanting what God has made one seems like an option. We must start with God's word. Secondly, take marriage as seriously as Jesus does. For those who are single, don't start a marriage flippantly. I tell every married couple who comes to me for premarital counseling. We have a moment in the first session where I tell them to look at each other. Look long and hard at them. Don't just look at their physical appearance. Look at them. Their character, their attitude, their actions, their speech, their work ethic. Look at them. And then I say, if you do not love them as they are, and if you cannot be committed to them as they are, you shouldn't get married. Because... To say, I love them for who I think they will become. To say, I I will be committed to them for who I think they will become. Is an unrealistic expectation for marriage. Because let's be honest. When we say, I do. That is saying, boom, I approve. You have passed all my inspections. Right? You have met the criteria. Boom, I approve of you. Now, hopefully, husband and wife improve. Hopefully, they grow. Hopefully, they become new people as the Lord transforms them. But, if they never do, and then ten years down the road, we're unhappy that they are who they were and not who we thought they would become, that's on us, not on them. We gave our stamp of approval on them on the day we said I do to them. So that's what I tell them. You must marry them for who they are, not who you think they'll become. And if you cannot see yourself living with this person as they are till death do us part, go home, cancel the wedding, call off the stuff, end it all. Better to end it now than to end it years later in divorce. But for those who are married, don't end a marriage casually. Fight for your spouse. Fight for your marriage. Repent when you're wrong. Forgive when you've been wrong. Now, listen, I know those last two aren't easy. Right? 
we are as humans a proud people. And as such, we don't like to repent when we're wrong. We don't like to admit this was my fault. I did this. I shouldn't have. It was all on me. We want to say, well, if you had it, then I wouldn't. That's not repentance. But at the same time, we're not really good about forgiving either. The deeper the wound, the harder it is to forgive. I I understand both of these. Pride is an issue I struggle with in my life. You can talk to my wife. One of the more difficult things she can ever get me to say is, I'm sorry. No conditions, no no jokes, no buyer flowers and just lay, let, let bygones be bygones. I'm sorry I was wrong. I'm just not good at that. But at the same time, mercy, I'm a Ross. And I can hold a grudge. I, and I'm telling you, I remember the kid who pushed me off the slide in first grade. I, I can hold a grudge till the day I die. And one of the issues I have with that is there are ways people can wrong me. And when they wrong me in those ways, they're just dead as far as I'm concerned. Now, I'm not mad. I don't plan revenge. I don't try to hurt them. But our relationship is over. Is that right? Is that godly? Is that what Jesus calls us to? Mercy sakes alive, no. I'm just openly telling you who I am. And what we have to do is be willing to forgive when we've been wronged. So our hearts are not hard and lead us to unwind what God has made one. We should be careful to let Jesus' words bear the weight on us they should. Because these are weighty words, aren't they? I mean, this isn't a light and a fluffy passage. It's deep. It's weighty. It's powerful. It just, whew, man. And we should let it bear that weight upon us so we can take marriage as seriously as Jesus does. To strengthen our marriages so we don't end up in a place where unwanting what God has made one seems like an option. We should take marriage as seriously as Jesus does. Thirdly, prioritize our marriages. Our priority human relationships should be our spouses, not our friends, not our moms and dads, not our siblings, not anything else. Jesus, then our spouse, if there's an order to things. Everyone else can fight for third place. But our spouses are to be the primary human relationship we have. When we get married... All other human priorities and all other human loyalties are to be secondary to that of our spouses. This is not my idea. This isn't my teaching. This is God's plan. Always been God's plan for the home. Look at verse 6 and 7 of our passage. The beginning of creation, God created them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. The two shall become one flesh. But notice, they shall leave father and mother. In the culture of the ancient world, boys and girls typically lived under the authority of their parents until they got married. It's my understanding that a lot of times what happened was once the engagement was set, the husband would go off and and basically build a house. 
And then when the house was ready and everything was done, he would go and get his bride. They would have the ceremony. And then he would lead her out of her father's house. And he would have left his father's house. And they would go to the new house. They left father and mother. And they started a new home. The priority in this relationship was not father and mother anymore. It was now the new home, the new family they had created. Jesus' words in verse 6 and 7 is a quote from Genesis 2, 23 and 24, showing this change of priorities was always God's plan. God's plan has always been that the relationship between a husband and a wife would be the highest human relationship and everything else would fall underneath it. When you get married, all of the human priorities, all of the human loyalties are to be secondary to your spouse. Now, whether we realize it or not, most of our weddings symbolize this. How many of us have either in our wedding or we've been to a wedding where we saw the, the unity candle done? Now, what is the unity candle? Well, the, the mother's bride comes up, the bride's mother comes up, and she goes up and she lights a candle on this side. And then she sits down. And then the groom's mom comes up and she lights a candle on, on this side. And then at a point in the ceremony, toward the end, the couple goes up there and, and the, the groom grabs the candle his mom lit. The bride grabs the candle her mom lit. And then they use both of those candles to light a, a candle that's in the middle. And they light that new candle. And once it's lit, what do they do with the two candles that represent their families? And they set them down unlit, showing we have moved from being in this family to now we are this family. That is the way marriage is supposed to work. Once a husband and wife come together to form a new family, there should be an unwavering priority to our spouse, to our family. To strengthen our marriages so we don't end up in a place where unwanting what God has made one seems like an option. We must prioritize our marriages. And then finally, keep Jesus the center of our marriage. Keep Jesus at the center of our marriages. The only way a union between two sinful people, which is what we all are, will last. Is if we both have an unwavering commitment to Jesus and an unwavering commitment to one another. This mutual and unconditional commitment to Jesus is a necessary part of a healthy marriage, a strong marriage. It is a this mutual and unconditional commitment to Jesus and to one another is a part of God's divine design for marriage. Turn to Ephesians 5.32. Page 898 if you have a pew Bible. So Paul has been talking about the marriage, the husband and the wife. And he concludes, he gets to the conclusion and he says, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking in reference to Christ and the church. God created marriage to illustrate the relationship between Jesus and the church. 
This is why when you look at these responsibilities that husbands and wives have toward one another, the name of Jesus is is woven throughout it. Throughout everything that a husband is supposed to do, that a wife is supposed to do, it is paired with the name of Jesus. So let's just look through this. Look at verse 21. Subject yourselves to one another in the fear of Christ. We submit to one another because of our devotion to Jesus. Look at verses 22 through 24. Wives, subject yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives should be subject to their husband and everything. Wives submit to their husbands just like the church should submit to Jesus. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Husbands love their wives and they sacrificially give themselves for the sake of their wives. Just like Jesus loves the church and sacrificially gave himself for the church. Look at verse 26 and 27. So he might sanctify her, having her cleansed with the washing of the water of the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but she would be holy and blameless. Husbands lead their wives toward and their families toward sanctification, holiness and devotion, just like Jesus works in his church and leads them toward sanctification, holiness and devotion. Look at verse 30. I'm sorry, verse 28 through 30. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourished and cherished it, just as Christ also the church. Husbands love their wives. And they show this by nourishing and cherishing them. Just like Jesus loves the church and shows it by nourishing and cherishing the church. Look at verse 31 and 32. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and these two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I'm speaking in reference to Christ and the church. Husbands and wives give one another a priority, devotion, and allegiance, just like Jesus gives priority, devotion, and allegiance to the church. Keeping Jesus the center of our marriage means we both have an unconditional commitment to Jesus. We both have an unconditional commitment to one another. We both have an unconditional commitment to Jesus' design for marriage. And un, without the unconditional commitment to any one of those areas, we are weakening our marriage and setting ourselves up to be in a place where unwanting what God has made one seems like the best option. We shouldn't unwind what God has made one, but living this out is harder than it seems. Because living with someone is quite a challenge. When you take two people and you join them together in what's meant to be a permanent union, and you add bills and kids and necessary lifestyle changes, things get challenging. Now, those, though, were expected mostly, but as the old commercial used to say, but wait, there's more. You must also add to this marriage the flaws and the failures of each person that they bring to the marriage. And here's the reality behind that. 
we don't really know their flaws and failures until we're married for the most part. Right? I mean, on that, on that starry-eyed, googly-faced day when we say I do, that person we're staring at is the most perfect human that has ever walked on the planet. We don't know they leave the toilet seat up. We don't know they put the toilet paper on the wrong way. We don't know that they, when they go to clean the house, they start in the back bedroom and work their way to the parts that people live in. We don't know that they refuse to shut drawers all the way and leave clothes hanging out and they think that's fine. We, we, don't, we don't know all of these issues. And so you add those things to the marriage. You must also add to the marriage the individual baggage and the unspoken expectation each person brings to the marriage. Again, these are things we largely don't know until it happens. How many of us that are married in our early days of the marriage, we found out our spouse was deeply grieved or bothered by something and we would have had no idea that was an issue. They brought something to the marriage we didn't know. They expected something from us we didn't know. And But it's not just them. We expect things from them. They didn't know. We just assumed they understood that they were expected to do that. You add to the marriage the ordinary stresses of life we all face. I mean, when you're married, Kelly's stresses are my stresses. My stresses are Kelly's stresses. Then you must also add to the marriage the unique stresses of life that will occur in a particular marriage. You know, marriages have stresses, right? But here's the reality. You have stresses in your marriage. We don't have in our marriage. And we have stresses in our marriage. You don't have in your marriage. So there's no one we can look at and be like, well, mom and dad's marriage was like this. That's the model. Well, there were stresses they had that we don't have. There are stresses we have they didn't have. We, we add that to it. Something unique is we're, we're trying to figure out our unique stresses. And then you add to it the direct spiritual attacks coming from the world, the flesh, and the devil seeking to destroy the marriage. Marriage is designed by God. For the health and holiness of his people. Satan hates your marriage. Satan hates my marriage. And Satan is trying to undermine every marriage everywhere. And these things add together. And pressure us. To unone what God has made one. But we can have a strong and healthy marriage. When we both have an unconditional commitment to Jesus and an unconditional commitment to one another. Our marriages can not only survive, but they can thrive. Keeping Jesus at the center of our marriage is key because he is what we are not. He is perfect. Jesus has perfectly lived out all of this stuff we're supposed to do. Within the marriage. Jesus perfectly submitted to the Father's will. Jesus is the bridegroom who is always worthy of our submission. Jesus has loved us with an everlasting love and has given himself for us. Jesus is always leading us toward holiness and devotion. Jesus loves us and is always nourishing and cherishing us.
Jesus has demonstrated his commitment to us through his death on the cross. We can keep him at the center because he fills in the gaps of the stuff that we're that were broken in us. He completes what we fall short on. So as we come to the close of the message, what I'm going to call on us to do is to come to the altar and surrender our lives to Jesus. Surrender our lives to have an unconditional commitment to Jesus in all things. For couples, I want to challenge you. Come together. And surrender yourself individually to have an unconditional commitment to Jesus. And then you two pray together. And and surrender, give an unconditional surrender to your marriage to Jesus. For singles, come to the altar and surrender yourself to Jesus. Then surrender all your future relationships to Jesus. And pray, whoever your future spouse may be will also have an unconditional surrender and commitment to Jesus. For those who may be struggling in the pain of divorce... Come to the altar and surrender yourself to Jesus. Confess and repent any part you may have played in causing the divorce. Receive his grace and mercy in your life. I ask you to stand. And I'll pray and the altars will be open. Father, we love you. Thank you for your grace and goodness for what you've given and done. God, us, Father, to have an unconditional commitment to Jesus. Lord, that we would have that in our individual lives. We would have that in our marriages. God, those who are single, Lord, to surrender themselves completely to Christ and to look for that. And those to whom they would begin to have relationships with in the future. God, our church and protect us, Lord. The enemy would be against our marriages, protect our marriages. May we have strong and healthy marriages built on Christ, bonded with our love for one another, that display the glory of God as they reflect the relationship of Christ in the church as it should. Have your way in this time of response. Do your work in our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I ask all that would to come to the altars and pray.